Morning. Thank you very much as well. If you've got a Bible, do you want to turn to Exodus chapter 3? And if you don't, don't worry. Um, I don't either. Um, it will be appearing on the screen. I've had, a, I've had a Bible mishap this morning, and it has turned out to be surprisingly difficult to source a copy of the translation I use in a church. But anyway, let's, learn, let's say no more about it. So we're going to put it up here in a moment. We're in a series um, on the Exodus story about how God draws us out in order to draw us in, how he takes us out of slavery and oppression and leads us into freedom and his presence. And we're going to do that over the course of the next two or three months. And we're going to be in Exodus 3 today looking at some of the names of God. And the reason we want to do that is partly because that's what the passage is about, but partly because it's actually one of the most important questions you can ever ask, is who God is. You've got to ask the question, who is God? It's not something British people actually spend a lot of time thinking about. Many of us spend a lot of time thinking about who am I. That's a big question in our generation, isn't it, of identity, who am I? What the Bible tends to do is say you you do need to know who you are, but the way you find out who you are is in light of who God is. So you you've got to start with who God is, just as you'd always start with a create you start with a creator before you get to the creation. You want to find out even kind of how a computer is supposed to function. You've got to what's it designed for and by whom and with what end. And the same's true of us. So actually you've got to ask who God is to understand rightly who you are. And you've got to ask who God is because people use the word God to mean all kinds of different things in our world. The word God is not obvious what it means at all. You stop people walking up and down the street. Um, in any, you could do it later today and just say, Tell me, you know, do you believe in God? And they'll say yes or no. And then say, what kind of God do you believe in? Tell me what you mean by the word God. And some people, many in this city, the word God will mean Allah. Many other people in the city, the word God will refer to thousands of different deities of varying sizes and powers. Various other people will see the word God as referring to an impersonal force. So you read polls on this stuff, and it's in Britain or many other countries, and you say, do you believe in God? Yes. What, do you believe in a personal God? No. Because they believe they use the word God, but they just don't use it of a personal being who wants to have relationship in any way. A load of other people, you'll say, you believe in God, yes. Tell me about what you believe. And they'll say, well, I believe God is in all of us. I believe we share in the divine, in a sense, or that I am God, or whatever it might be. And so you get, you've got to ask the question, who is God? What do you mean by that word, if you're going to make sense of what it is to talk about him at all? And you've actually got to ask that question, even if you're talking to people who don't believe in God. I've done this before. Do you, somebody says they're an atheist, and there'll probably be some here today who say, oh, I don't believe in God yet. I'm here, I'm interested, but I'm, I don't think I believe in God at the moment. And one of the questions I sometimes ask people is, tell me about the God you don't believe in. What kind of God don't you believe in? And, when they, and it sounds like a silly question, but I'm not doing it as a joke. I genuinely want to kind of understand, because sometimes people will tell me the kind of God they don't believe in, and I'll say, oh, that's fine. I don't believe in that God either. I believe in a very... Because sometimes people are rejecting a God that isn't the God of the Bible. That's often true. And so it's worth asking and understanding. And for a Christian, the identity of God is always bound up with who Jesus is and with the story of the Exodus. I know it might sound like a... So in other words, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same. And the names of God we're going to read in a moment remain the names of the God that is worshipped in Jesus. And it's really important to grasp that because otherwise Christians read the Old Testament as if it's about one God and then start reading the New Testament and, oh, this is now the Jesus God. He's different. I love the way theologian Robert Jensen puts it. It's a good quote. He says, God is 
whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having before raised Israel from Egypt. That's what a Christian means when we use the word God. Now, there's other things you could say about him too, of course, but the identity of God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead, having before raised Israel from Egypt. That God is, he's a raising kind of God who brings people out of darkness into light. He's done that in Jesus, but he's also done it in the Exodus story as well. And in this chapter, Exodus 3, perhaps more than anywhere else in the Bible, we get a, a sense of who God is through the names of God. So let's read Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, which is also Sinai, that's the name, same name, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned." When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what's been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you out, up out of the affliction of Egypt, to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt... And say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt won't let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of God.
Names tell you a lot about people in the Bible. And that's true in many cultures in the world today. It's not true in all. It's not true in if you like white British culture that I'm from, but it's true in a lot of cultures. And in the Bible, it's really important to see it, particularly if you're from a culture in which names don't mean much. Right? There are a lot of people you meet and you say, what does your name mean? And they don't know. And probably a lot of us don't know what our names mean. In Scripture, that's unlikely to be ever true because people live in their name. They are given prophetic names which indicate something of their destiny. So you have a child named Isaac. He laughs. He's a, the joke, which is really the idea that there is now laughing and rejoicing in the family of God because God has given Abraham and Sarah a child. A child is named Moses. He draws out because he's going to be the one through whom Israel are drawn out of slavery. Child's called Jesus, Yeshua, and it means the Lord saves because the angel says he will save his people from their sin. So children are named prophetically with meaning. And actually adults have their names changed as well with meaning. So you're called Abraham, exalted father. It's changed to Abraham, father of many nations. Sarai, changed to Sarah. And Jacob, changed to Israel. He struggles with God. Simon, changed to Peter, the rock. So names are very important in biblical culture, and in British culture, many large parts of British culture today, it's lost. Right? So people, people say, hi, what's your name? You say, Andrew. And they say, what does your name mean? And I say, man. And they say, okay, well, why did your parents choose this name? And I'm like, I think they like the sound of the name. And then, and then they say, what's your father's name? And you say, Charles. And they say, what does this name mean? And you say, free man. And they say, why did your grandparents choose that name? And you say, because they like the sound of the name. And it makes you feel like a bit of an idiot because there's no real depth to it. There's just like they chose a name because they quite like the sound of it. And that may be true for you, but it may be true that your parents chose your name with very specific... Some people choose their name very prayerfully. They say, we want to do, do this because we think this is bound up with who this person will grow up to be. In British culture, we tend to more go down the line of, oh, what's your name? And say, Andrew. And then the next question is usually, and what do you do? Or maybe, where are you from, right? So we quickly go to function. Like, what, what do you do? But of course, many of us are from cultures, and I've had plenty of conversations like this where people say, what's your name? And then the next question is, what's, what, what does the name mean? What is your father's name? What is your mother's name? What does that mean? What are your children's names? Why did you choose these names? Now, if you know me at all, you'll know that I quite like playing games with names. I, I sort of, many of you, will, when I first met you, will have had some sort of conversation with you about what your name is, because I just find them really interesting. And I was sitting in a meeting recently thinking, I know I'm going to be preaching on this, so I, come on, we, we know, you know, Steve Tibbet, senior pastor, I've got to find out, what, does, what is a Tibbet? Come on, what is a Tibbet? Let's, let's do, dig in there. We've got some Tibbets in the room now. What's that name mean? And they may not even know themselves, but I knew Stephen meant crown, and I thought, okay, Tibbet. So I looked it up, and I found, okay, so... It's a double diminutive. A diminutive is like a, a way you make something little. And like in Spanish, they would say, you know, Andrew would be Andrito or something like a little Andrew. So, but Tibbet is a double one of those. It's like, you know, something, little, little uh, version of that. And then I found out that what it's a, the something was that a Theobald, which means a bold man. So then I realized that Stephen Tibbet means a crown on the head of a little, little bold man. And it just brought me such joy to discover that that's what his name means. And of course, he doesn't know that yet because he's upstairs doing a membership morning. And we've just all told you about it. So you can go and enjoy that with him later on. I just thought it was great. In the Bible, it would be unthinkable probably that you wouldn't know what your name meant. And that's true again for many of us. And, in the, and it's particularly important to see it when it comes to God. 
Because God gives us his name and asks us, as we'll see, to relate to us by his name and not just by what he does. And there are three names in this passage that, when you add them all up, are used around 7,000 times in the Bible. These names are used twice as often as the word God in the Bible. So it's a hugely important thing for us to understand. And the three names that I think you can see, in the, and you probably heard it as we read the text, lots of mentions. Verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then verse 14, I am who I am. And then verse 15, the Lord. And each of those three names reveals to us something powerful about the character, the essence, the reality of who God is. Whether or not it relates to function, but simply because of who he is in himself. And the first one you see introduced in verse 4, and it's important to see how it surprises Moses and why Moses is scared when he is. Right? Verse 4, when the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Now we need to pause there because what we see is that Moses is not at all worried about the fact that a bush is on fire and is talking to him. He's fine with miracles, right? He lives in a world where he's just assuming, okay, this is unusual, but sure, I'll stop and have a conversation with a burning bush. Why wouldn't I? So it's not the miracle that frightens him when he gets frightened, right? That's important. Verse 5, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And again, he doesn't freak out at this point. He seems to be, we assume he obeys. He just does that. Verse 6, then he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. I find that a fascinating sequence. You're walking down, whatever, you're just walking down Catford Hill, and there's a tree on fire, and it starts talking to you. You're going to go, ah, and run away. But he's fine with that, and he's fine with the idea that he's got to take his shoes off to approach holy ground. What he doesn't, what terrifies him to his boots and makes him hide is when he hears the name. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And suddenly he's frightened because he realizes this is the same God that I've heard about. This is the same God that I have been worshiping without knowing fully who he is. And as I see the connection between this bush and the God who made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am frightened as I realize this is the real God right here. This isn't a a random miracle or a tribal deity. This is the God who made everything. The God who hears prayer. And here he is talking to me. There's a guy I know who's in his 40s now, but when he and his friends were in their late teens, they had a series of prayer meetings in their mum's shed for whatever reason. They just thought this would be a bit radical, quirky, hippie Christianity thing to do. And they just sort of went and they started praying in, God's, in their shed and, were just like, and they were just enjoying doing stuff that was a little bit edgy and no one quite knew what they were doing. And a couple of friends of theirs who weren't Christians would come along and see because it's a kind of weird thing for a group of friends to do. And they sort of came in. And there was one evening, he says, where... There was just this very powerful, tangible sense of the presence of God that was doing remarkable things, miracles among the people. And one of the guys was so frightened by what he saw that he ran out of the shed shouting, God's in the shed! God is in the shed! And they had to come out and calm him down saying, no, 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 it's okay. No, but you don't understand. God's in your mum's shed! And there's something of that in this story, isn't there? That you just, I'm suddenly realizing this is, this is real. Like, I'm, I've heard that word used some, I believe in God, yeah, God help me this, oh, yeah, 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 whatever. No, 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 God's actually there. And Moses has a moment like that in this story. God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is in this bush and he's talking to me. 
It's like he suddenly realizes this is the God who answers prayer. This is the creator God. This, he, he knows the story of Genesis. This is the God who sent the flood and who destroyed Sodom and vindicated Joseph. This is the God of the rainbow. This is the God of Jacob's ladder where Jacob woke up in the night and went, God is here and I didn't even realize. This is the God of the covenant who called Israel to be his people and said, Abraham, stars as the sky, can you count them? That's how many kids you're going to have. This is the God who made everything, and here I am talking to him. It is a frightening thought, and yet it is a glorious thought. Because it means when I'm walking to the bus stop, talking to God, as I do, and I'm sure many of us do as well, and it's beautiful that we are able to do that without needing to go through, you don't have to find a burning bush. You can talk to God anywhere you are. But when I am doing that, I'm walking to the bus stop, I'm talking to Abraham's God. I'm talking to the God who was there that night when the promise was made. I'm talking to the God of Jacob's ladder. I'm talking to the God who actually wrestled with Israel at the river Jabbok. I'm talking to the God who provided a substitute for Isaac. I'm talking to him. And, I'm just, and I might not be saying good things. I might be walking to the bus stop and I'm not talking to God. I'm actually doing something completely different. And Abraham's God can see everything I'm doing. And there is a frightening mixed with glorious thoughts at work when you realize that the name of God is that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That it's the same God, always, then, now, forever. Jacob's God has adopted me into his family. And that makes you pause in wonder sometimes. And Moses encounters this name and is terrified even to look. You move on, verse 13 The second name comes up. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you ought to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. That's the kind of sentence that makes me want to stop and be quiet for a moment. I am who I am. See, every other name that we use is based on another concept or entity outside of the person being named. I can't think of any other exception to that principle. Right? You use a name, what you do is you tie this person's identity to something beyond themselves. Okay, so I've said my name, Andrew, means man, refers to an, another entity. There were men before me, an awful lot of them, and I'm just being named as one of those. My wife's name is Rachel. It's the Hebrew word for a female sheep. Just don't ask me. I mean, some of us are called Rachel in the room. There's nothing wrong, but that's her name. But that's what is using an entity other than her to describe who she is. My son's name is Ezekiel. It means God strengthens me. My daughter's name is Anna. It means grace. My son's name is Samuel. It means heard of God or God hears. And in each case, we're naming people according to how they relate to another being. Or another concept. My last name is Wilson, means son of William. And all of us do that. We are named after something, somebody, some place else, because that's how you put people on the map. Because the creation has been here before you. And you were born, and one day you weren't there, and one day you won't be. But here you are now. And so when you were born, somebody had to find a way of connecting you to another reality, and they gave you a name that pegged you to something else. But you can't do that with God. Because there's no before for God. There's nothing to put him in the context of. God is being itself, whether or not there is a world. So if you're going to use a name for God, you can't just say, well, God is, of course, the one who came along and is a little bit like this. Because God is being itself. He is, I am that I am. 
And you can't put him on the map in some other... Moses is effectively saying, what's your name? As in, help me put you into some category I already have. And God says, I can't. I am. He's looking at Moses. Moses imagines saying, I want to define you with reference to another category. Can I, for instance, make your name, like, could be creator, sustainer, savior. God's like, but God has been before there was even a creation, before there was any salvation, before there was anything to sustain. God is who he is, even if you're not there. God is the only being ever who does not need another entity or thing to define him, but who is everything he is without there needing to be anything else. And none of us work that way. We couldn't. It would be ridiculous if we did. But he is beyond time. He's beyond space. He's above all powers. He's before all things. He was and is and is to come. I am that I am. So who are you going to compare him to? Moses is asking, how do I fit you into my thinking? And God is just saying, you cannot do that because... Your little categories don't apply to me. You are dependent. I am self-existent. You are contingent. You need something else to keep you going. I am necessary. Infinite. You have boundaries in time and space. I don't. I am infinite. You draw your meaning from outside yourself, which is why that's what your name means. I don't. You were not. I am. There's a scene at the beginning of um, the movie Schindler's List, uh, which is a film about the Holocaust. But the, uh, the Liam Neeson, who's the main character, is this sort of big, very, very charismatic German guy with great swagger. And they're trying to introduce the character to us. And they do it by he walks into this bar with loads of people are sort of sitting and drinking and eating and dancing. And, and he just sits down and he's a very sort of breezy, arrogant man and puts up this sort of 50-mark bill or something. And a waiter appears out of nowhere and he says, go and buy those guys a round of drinks. And the waiter's like, who on earth is this guy? And he says to him, who shall I say they're from? And Jinnah says, you can say they are from me. And it's like supposed to introduce us to the sort of breezy arrogance of this man. That he's the kind of guy who wouldn't even give his name. He's just say, they're from me. What else do you need to know? And yet there's a sense in which that's exactly what God is doing here. Moses is saying, whom shall I say that I am from? And God says, you can say you are from me. You know, I don't need to define myself with reference to anything else. I send you, you're from me, that's the end of it. That self-identification is appropriate for God, even as it's utterly inappropriate for everyone else, including Schindler, because God is being itself and the source of everything that is or was or ever could be, and therefore to use any other way of naming him would be inappropriate. He is simply, I am that I am. And then in verse 15 we get given a third name, which is effectively a shortened or contracted version of the second name. Right? So I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am that I am. And then this shorter name, the Lord, or Yahweh. Four letters in YHWH. In your Bibles, it may say Jehovah. That's an older English word for the same thing. And I am that I am is basically a bit of a mouthful. So God gives Moses a shortened version. And the YHWH, and we generally translate it in an English Bible, it's generally translated the Lord in capitals. Now, you may, many of us will know this, some of us won't know this though, that when you read through your Bible, you'll find the Lord is sometimes in capitals and sometimes in lowercase. When it's in capitals, it is translating this name Yahweh, the Lord, Jehovah, if you like. When it's in lowercase, it's referring to God as like, it translates a different word, Adonai, which means like master or Lord and, or king in that sense. So when you read Psalm 8, say, and it says, O Lord, capitals, our Lord, lowercase, 
That's saying, oh Lord, name our Lord function. It's like saying, oh Elizabeth, our queen. Yeah? This is the name, this is the function. And God, in this text, is saying to Moses, actually, you need to relate to me by means of my name. And often, what we want to do is relate to him by means of a function. Right? It's an important application here for us, actually. So here's a picture of my wife, Rachel. And um, she's the one on the right. Um, <laughs> Maybe able to tell. And I call her Rachel or Rach. Like, I, that's, I just use her her name as the primary means of address, even though, of course, to me, she has a whole load of functions as well. Right? She, I could, she is my wife. She is the mother of my children. She is my friend. She is my housemate. She is a pastor. She is an employee, whatever might she else you might be. But I still call her Rachel, usually. And if I was to regularly or usually address her by means of a function, it would suggest something was wrong. So if I was, I don't mean as a joke, I'm not saying if you say, oi wife, as a joke, I mean I don't tend to do that, but you hear people and and they're kidding around, that's fine. But if I regularly did, I didn't call her Rachel, I said wife, 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 all the time, you would probably hear it and think, that sounds like there's not as much intimacy as you would expect, but it also sounds like a slight lack of dignity for her, because it's implying that the main thing she is, is the thing she is to you. It's sort of implied, because wife would imply you are derivative of my identity, right? Because you're a wife to me, and therefore I'm making myself at the center, and you are like peripheral to me, you just happen to be a wife. So you call someone Rachel, and you are dignifying them by giving them their name rather than their office or their function. And I think it's the same with God. I think some of us find it very easy to talk to God primarily or even exclusively as creator, redeemer, savior. And those titles and offices are glorious and I love them. And I hope you know that if you've been around the church any length of time. I always talk about God qualifying who he is and talking about things like that. But that's not ultimately who he is because actually he is, I am who I am. He is the Lord even if I'm not there. So he's not primarily my redeemer. That is who he is, and I thank God for it. But ultimately, behind that, he is already, I am. He is the Lord. I need to address him by his name, primarily, and then come into seeing him in a sense of what is functional about him. And the Lord tells Israel to do that. He says, this is my name, and it's how I want you to refer to me throughout all generations. And as I said, the name, the Lord, Yahweh, is used more than twice as often as the word God in the Old Testament. Because Israel got the message. And interestingly, Jesus does the same, doesn't he? He says, when you pray, say, Father, I want you to call me a name. I don't want you just to say, oh, person who does this. I want you to think of me as a name. And even with Jesus, we call him Jesus, not just, oh, what person who saves me. We use names for God. And in Israel's case, this name means I am that I am. It's a shortened form. And every time they use it, it reminds them that he is the I am. He is the necessary, the sufficient, the simple, the everlasting, infinite, independent, unchanging God who is always good. And they know all of those things because it's in his name. And I think there's a lot of encouragement in, that, in this story and in those three names for all of us who, probably like me and certainly like Moses, feel unqualified to do the thing that God has asked us to do. Right? There'll be a lot of people who feel that today for whatever reason, right? Some of us, it will be a particular thing that's just happened in your life, a new job or a new child that's come into your life or a new step you're taking in your career or in ministry or whatever it may be, in the family. 
Others of us, it may be one big thing that might be a way away, but we can see it coming, and every time we think about it, we go, I just don't feel like I can do that. I feel like it's too big for me. Moses is definitely in that position, and it's interesting that these names are revealed to Moses as a way of changing the subject from what Moses actually asked. What Moses asks in verse 11 is, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God totally doesn't answer the question and says, I will be with you. And Moses goes, no, no, who am I? I want to tell me all about me so that I will feel big enough to take this on. And God says, I will be with you. I don't care who you are. No one cares who you are. You're tiny. Now, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. Well, imagine some Jewish guy who's been a slave all this time just goes, let my people go. So I'm going to get out of here and clip around the ear. You don't, no, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you, but he will listen to me. I will be with you. No, it's not you. I'm not going to, I could big you up, of course, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you who I am. And as I was thinking about this, the prophetic text that came to my mind was the Gruffalo by Julia Donaldson. Do you know this story? And if you, if you don't, I will tell you the story, but oh my goodness, what an illustration of what it is to go with the I am behind you saying it's not about you. A mouse took a stroll through a deep, dark wood, and a fox saw the mouse, and the mouse looked good. Where are you going to, little brown mouse? Come and have tea in my underground house. That's awfully kind of you, fox, but no, I'm going to have tea with a gruffalo. A gruffalo? What's a gruffalo? A gruffalo. Why? Didn't you know? And so it goes on. He describes this big creature which you can see, and so, of course, the punchline's been spoiled for you because you know that the gruffalo's there. Anyway, halfway through the story, having avoided all of these animals who were trying to eat him, the mouse finally meets the gruffalo. Oh, who is this creature with terrible claws and terrible teeth and his terrible jaws? His eyes are orange, his tongue is black, he has purple prickles all over his back. Oh, help, oh no, it's a gruffalo! And the children, of course, aged three, four, five, are going, oh, the gruffalo's real. And then the gruffalo's, my favorite food, the gruffalo said. You'll taste good on a slice of bread. Good, said the mouse. Why call me good? I'm the scariest creature in this wood. Just walk behind me and soon you'll see everyone is afraid of me. All right, said the gruffalo, bursting with laughter. You go ahead, and I'll follow after. And now the great thing now is, of course, the children are reading this story thinking, I think the, the animals are going to see the mouse, and they're going to be scared of the gruffalo. But the gruffalo is so stupid, he doesn't realize that, he's not scared, that they're not scared of the mouse. So the gruffalo will think the mouse is a really scary creature. And then, of course, that's exactly what happens. They walked a while till the gruffalo said, I hear a hiss in the leaves ahead. It's snake, said the mouse. Why snake? Hello. Snake took one look at the gruffalo. Oh, crumbs, said the snake. Goodbye, little mouse. And off he, sped, off he slid to his underground house. You see, said the mouse, I told you so. Amazing, said the gruffalo. And they do that again and again. And meet all of these animals who look at the mouse, and the mouse is nothing. And then they look at the gruffalo, and they think, ah, we can't take him on, because they're scared of the gruffalo. But the gruffalo's too stupid to realize. And the children are going, yeah. And at the very end, all the animals have scattered. And the mouse turns around and says, you see, said the mouse, I told you. Now, gruffalo, you see, everyone is afraid of me. But now my tummy's beginning to rumble. And my favorite food is gruffalo crumble. Gruffalo crumble, the gruffalo said. And quick as the wind, he turned and fled. All was quiet in the deep, dark wood. A mouse saw a nut. And the nut was good. And that's how the story goes. It's a beautiful story. Now, can you see that what every four-year-old can see when they read that story is that it's not about the mouse. 
The mouse goes, if the mouse had had Moses' identity problems, or mine, or yours, say, but who am I that I should scatter the snakes and the foxes and the owls and the deep dark wood? And the, animal, the children reading the story going, but it's not about the mouse. They're not scared of the mouse. They're not going to listen to the mouse. They're going to listen to the big, gigantic, powerful presence who's behind the mouse. And if he is with them, then they've got nothing to fear, have they? So they might be going, who am I? Who am I? And it's like God says, it's not about the mouse, and it's not about Moses, and it's not about you or you. It's about the fact that the I am is with you. And Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. But I tell you, when the gruffalo that is, and please don't overhear the theology here, but when the gruffalo that is God, the I am, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's God, being itself is behind you, Pharaoh will run in terror back to his underground house. And that's what will take place when we step out in the knowledge of who God is on our side, rather than thinking, but who am I? Am I qualified? Have I done enough to merit this? God says, no, it's not about the mouse. It's not about Moses. It is the fact that the I am, please do not worry, Moses, Io, Claire, Ethan, Andrew, little brown mouse, don't worry who you are. I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am who I am. I am the Lord, and I will be with you. Amen? Amen. Let's thank him. Father, we thank you so much for your presence. We thank you so much for the name of God. We thank you so much for being the God of the covenant, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the I am who has always been and always will be, who was and is and is to come. We thank you for being the Lord. We thank you for being the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that with all of the things we have ahead of us, the challenges that many of us are walking into in the next 24 hours or next month or the next year, that we would do so mindful not of our own marvelous brilliance, but of the giant presence of the I am who is with us in everything we do, that we may go confident of his guardianship and love and affection for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.